Hey, welcome. Come on in and find a seat. We're going to go ahead and get started. So glad that we could spend a few minutes together here and talk through some of the topics that are found in 1 Timothy. So come on in, grab a seat, and for a few minutes, let's talk about some of these, these big themes in 1 Timothy. Uh, last week, we were able to talk for a little bit about um, ladies and ministry and their part in the church. And we had a great discussion. I'm going to put up a few words on the board and we can grab any of those themes and talk about them. But you may have some specific questions. And today, uh, the focus of today's message has to do with eldership. And so there may be some questions that you have regarding that. It is kind of a big theme and um, so it might be something you want to talk about. But let me throw a few uh, options up here, and then maybe you have some additional ones that will come up in questions. So I think maybe one could be authority. It's like the naughty A word, um, authority. We don't say that. We don't like that. So maybe we could talk about it. Um, here's another one. Um, bivocational. And really thinking about eldership in terms of a congregation that may not be able to add full-time paid elders. Um, but what about bivocational elders? Sometimes they're called lay elders or non-staff elders. I think that might be uh, something. Pathway to the pastorate. In other words, okay, so you're talking this morning about 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and it's talking about the qualifications for eldership, but what exactly would be the pathway if someone was starting to be burdened? If there was a man who was burdened or considering or praying or aspiring, what would be the pathway? I mean, what would they, what would they do? And so maybe those are a few. Are there any others that you guys want to start with? So we can start with any of these, or maybe you came this morning and you have your own question, and we should jump into that first. So I'm going to open it up. The only qualification is you have to help me remember to repeat the question so that it goes into the recording, because apparently last week it's just like silence, and then, I, and then I start talking, and everyone listening is wondering, why is he talking about that? Because they couldn't hear the question. Okay, so let me just open it up. Are there any questions to start us out? And there are a few. All right, Jeremiah. On the pathway to pastor, do you think that seminary is a requirement for the pastors? Okay, so the question is, do you think that seminary is a requirement for the pastorate when we think about the pathway to the pastorate? And the answer is yes, because Paul went to seminary. No, no, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, it's not that simple, is it? Because there wasn't a seminary back then. However, let's think about the training process. I think that's probably more important than whether or not you end up with a certificate that says Master of Divinity at the end. And that is when you think about the disciples and their pathway towards leadership in the church, how were they trained? Well, they were trained through three years of walking with Jesus. I mean, we don't have all the records 
of all the conversations that happened between those disciples and Jesus, but they basically lived in his presence for three years. They listened to him preach. They listened to him teach. They asked him questions. They were corrected when they messed up, you know, like, oh, you of little faith. Come on, guys, I don't need bread. I just fed 5,000, you know what I mean? He, he's helping these guys along in their faith journey, and he's teaching them. Or how about after the resurrection? Do you remember he spends 40 days with them, and it says, teaching on the kingdom. I have so longed that there would have been a book in the Bible called Kingdom. I know we have 1 Kings and 2 Kings, but Kingdom, like what did Jesus teach about the kingdom for those 40 days? But they received that. They were being taught. They were being mentored into ministry. And it wasn't through a formal seminary education. It was through three years with, of, of, of being with Jesus. I would say the same with Paul. Paul had a foundation of Old Testament uh, biblical knowledge. Do you remember? He studied under Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee. He likely had much of the Old Testament memorized. And so he was very well studied in the Old Testament prior to Christianity. But then when he became a believer, if you remember, he went to the Arabian desert for three years. Many believe that's where Jesus himself taught Paul. He was in the Arabian desert for three years before he comes on the scene um, interacting with the church. So this is what I would say. Less important is whether the pathway is, has formal or informal. More important is that it has mentoring and training, right? And that's what's going to move someone in the pastorate from being a neophyte, someone who's immature, to someone who's mature. There has to be some mentorship and training along the way. And we see that as a biblical model from Old Testament to New, right? I mean, let's just think. What are some mentoring relationships from Old Testament to New? Elijah. Okay, Elijah and Elisha, right? I mean, I think that's a, a, a pretty significant, significant model. Elisha knew that he was going to be the next lead prophet because Elijah had already put the mantle on him. But instead of just taking over, he followed Elijah along until Elijah was taken up to heaven. Any other ones? Okay, so you said, okay, so I think this is an interesting, Saul, who later is known as Paul, was mentored, actually, yes, by someone named Barnabas. It's a fascinating thing in the book of Acts to notice that Barnabas is listed first, and then it switches, and then Paul is going to be listed first, and then they're eventually going to go two separate ways, and there's going to be a multiplication of ministry through a difficult circumstance. But there's mentorship there. You can think about Moses and Joshua, and you can go all the way through. There's these mentoring relationships. So I think it's less important, whether it's formal training or informal training, but that there is training. And it has to get to a point, Jeremiah, I would say this, like even if you don't get a seminary degree, it has to get to a point where you can unfold God's word. I um, was debating whether to go to medical school and then perhaps go to seminary or whether I should go to seminary and then see if I should still go to medical school. Because I was thinking, you know, when God moved my heart, like you should, you should minister the word, I thought maybe I can combine my background and ambitions and I'll be a medical missionary. That's what I thought. And there was a seminary president who sat down with me and this is what he did. It, it impacted me and changed my decision. He did something very simple. He sat down with me and he took his Bible like this and he went like this. And then he said, can you handle this? That's what he said. That was it. Like, can you handle this? And I thought, hmm, nope. <laughs> I 
I probably need to be trained in this. And it changed my trajectory. Like, I, I'm going to get trained in this. And he just really counseled me. Get, get trained in the word. And then if you want to pursue that, do it. Uh, if you go down the medical route, you might be 10 years paying off debt and never get to seminary. And um, so just, uh, I would just say you have to be able to handle this. I don't know everything in this, but I did learn the tools for how to do that. And, um, and then I would say, you, so not only do you have to be able to handle this, like unpack it for God's people, because an elder has to lead and feed, but you also have to be able to reprove and rebuke. And that is in Titus chapter one. In other words, if you don't know the word well enough to protect the flock from false teaching, you're probably not ready to lead the flock. It would be like putting a shepherd out there who can't do anything about uh, things that want to attack the flock. If he's not ready to fight against things that threaten the flock, then he may not be ready to lead yet. And so uh, I'm, I'm not down on seminary at all. You guys know that because I went to like seminary for 17 years. I was, I was like a professional seminarian, you know, <laughs> till Lisa was like, no more school, no more school. Um, but um, like even on our team, there are guys who have gone very far and long in seminary, guys who have not, but all the guys have been trained. And that's what we believe is important. So that was a long answer to a short question. Sorry about that. Okay, let's go over here to Bill and then back here to John. So does the fact that there are instructions about women and children, deacons, Okay, good. So there have been interpretations. Have you? Yes, thank you. I almost answered the question without repeating the question. So here's the question for all of those who are listening in today. We're really glad you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> the question was so, in the list of qualifications that have uh, that talks about your marriage and family and children, does that mean? that an elder has to be married. Um, and so there have been some who have interpreted that. I mentioned, if you were in first service, I mentioned that the um, Orthodox Church required their clergy to be married because of the phrase husband of one wife. However, on the flip side, the Western Church said, you can't be married, the, the Catholic Church, you can't be married to, um, to be an elder. I, I brought this in. I want to read this to you. Can I do it? Just for a second. This is Vatican II. The Second Vatican Council conceded that celibacy is not demanded of the priesthood by its nature and referred to the verses in 1 Timothy as evidence. Yet it argued that celibacy is, quote, in harmony with the priesthood on pastoral grounds that celibate priests are less encumbered in their service and on theological grounds that they are a living sign to the world to come in which there is no marriage. So the council exhorts priests to, quote, hold fast with courage and enthusiasm to your celibacy. <laughs> I was like, oh, stinks to be you. <laughs> you know, like, sorry, guys. You were so close, but no. <laughs> the Second Vatican Council conceded that, yeah, it seems like marriage might be, oh, but hold fast, guys. <laughs> hold fast. So, um... There's been a lot of interpretations of the First Timothy passage. Here are some of the implications that you could, should consider. If a man must be married, like husband of one wife, then it's probably he must also have children. I mean, if you're going to follow the logic that these aren't just qualifications, if they apply, but they must apply, then you have to take that logic all the way down, and then 
you're going to have to have children. So I would lean against that interpretation. Paul himself was likely not married. And Paul, who wrote this, actually says there are people gifted to singleness for the service of the Lord with single-focused service in 1 Corinthians 7. So I, I think he's saying, if they're married, then these are the qualifications. If they have children, then these are the qualifications. And uh, I think that's probably a more consistent view with his whole corpus of writing. So letting Bible speak into Bible when we interpret. Thanks, Bill. Okay, John? Yeah, I think just connecting the train question two questions ago with bivocational. Would you distinguish between, um, for purposes of authority and influence and maybe training, the staff pastors and the non-staff pastors, and particularly the preaching pastor that's called specifically preaching? So the question is, uh, in the pathway to the pastorate that may eventuate in staff pastors or non-staff pastors, is there a differentiation in training um, or things that we would expect or require, uh, especially leading to a lead pastor? Did I get kind of the essence of that? Okay, so authority and dynamics of leadership. Okay, when you look at scripture, you don't find categories of hierarchy in eldership. You find some differentiation in some roles. And take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. So if you'll look in your Bible, we're, we're studying 1 Timothy and we'll get to this section. But look at 1 Timothy 5, 17. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. It seems to indicate there that not there are um, higher level elders and lower level elders, but rather there are ones whose position is set apart for laboring in preaching and teaching, which not all of them seem to be set apart to labor in that specific area. All of them have to be able to teach. That's 1 Timothy chapter 3 but not all of them will be set aside. And I would put it this way. The church affords certain elders to give the majority of their time to preaching and teaching. And that really should be the church. The church affords certain elders. And the way this works is there are certain elders who that may not be their primary gifting for the venue of teaching God's word. So there are elders, and they are primarily gifted to teach God's word, but maybe in smaller contexts, or maybe in counseling, or maybe in discipleship, or more informal teaching. So not all elders have to be as proficient in public speaking in order to be a good teacher or a qualified teacher. Some are set apart that way. What I want to shy away from, and I'm going to tell you after studying this topic pretty deeply, I want to shy away from uh, levels of elders. So you, ha you end up with like bishops. <laughs> I, I want to I stay away from that because I don't see that in scripture. I do see that that happened in church history. But there are some reasons probably why that happened. It could have been connected both with education and literacy or availability of God's word or one's personal connection and discipleship by an apostle. 
And because of those factors, there were certain people in geographic regions that rose as maybe having more knowledge or access to God's word or influence because of that. So like this guy is over in this region and he, he was discipled by John the Apostle. And he has access to the stories that are yet to be written down as a gospel account. And he's been taught these things. Well, he's going to be probably a step up from some of the others out here who don't have access to any of the written records or access to the personal discipleship. So early on in the church, before we have access to the scriptures broadly spread about, there were people with more influence. They became known as, as bishops, and then there was a whole structure that was organized based on that. But I don't think they got that from the Bible. So that's why I want to stay away from categories of elders. I do see in Scripture, look at 1 Peter 5. This is an interesting little, little verse. This, this has been influential, influential in my own understanding of eldership. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 5 is an interesting verse. 1 Peter 5, 5. In one sense, if you read it all by itself, you think about age. But if you read it in context, you think about elders in the church. So look at it for a second. 1 Peter 5, 1 says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter, the first of the apostles, listen, he is listed, his name is listed first in every list of the disciples. In the inner three, his is always listed first. At Pentecost, he's the primary point who speaks. Peter was the lead among the apostles. So if you had 120, Peter's the lead. If you have 12, Peter's the lead. If you have three, Peter's the lead. Peter's the lead. But Peter does something very interesting in verse number one. He looks at these other guys and says, I'm just a fellow elder among you. Do you see what he just did? What did he do? He humbled himself with these other elders. Even though he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ, a partaker of the glory that's going to be revealed, he humbles himself. He, he looks eye to eye with these other elders and he says this, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge. Be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you take verse five out of context, you just think it means age. When you put it in context, you see he's talking about elders. And, he, and let, me just, let me help you understand verse five. Likewise, you who are younger elders, <laughs> be subject to the elder elders. But he says, but clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Almost like, like what I just did, <laughs> verse one. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so instead of seeing a hierarchy within the eldership, I actually see that there are some who are maybe because of time or training or spirit-gifted talent 
have become elder elders. But their job is to relate with humility, clothe themselves with humility, and to help the younger elders mature. And so in an eldership, there's, I think it's super healthy. You might have an elder who is a brand new elder with very little experience, and then you might have an elder with 20 or 30 or 40 years of experience. And this is what it should look like. It should look like this. But this elder elder should be mentoring this younger elder so that they can mature to serve Christ's body better. And so clothed with humility, all of you, but younger elders submitting to elder elders uh, because they know that they can learn and grow through it. Did that answer your question or was there more that I should touch on, John? Okay, Zach. Um, so considering a pastor has authority over a church member, how can a church member approach a pastor with concerns over their behavior or character in a way that's fruitful and constructive? Since a pastor has authority over a church member, how could a church member come and talk to a pastor when they have concerns over their... About that pastor's uh, behavior or... About that pastor's behavior or character. How would, how would someone do that? Okay. Um, so first, let's establish some of those um, things that you said. So does a pastor have authority over a church member? Well, yes, in one sense. And that is in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17... It says, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves because they watch for your souls. But then it says this, as those who must give an account so that they can do it with joy and not grief because that would be unprofitable for you. And so, yes, there is spiritual authority. However, it's spiritual authority that has to give an account. So this is, this is significant. So it, it can't be like, well, I'm in charge and I'm going to do whatever I want. No, friend, you're going to give an account one day to a higher authority. And so um, I would say, so yes. Uh, second thing I want to say about that authority, however, is that a pastor's authority is derived authority more than positional authority. And let me explain what I mean. There is some measure of positional authority but it's more derived authority from the word. So the degree of a pastor's authority is connected to the degree in which what he does and what he says corresponds to the word. And so the real authority of a pastor is the sense that he has derived authority only through communicating the word. Makes sense. So uh, positional authority would come from from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and it says that they're supposed to show respect for their work's sake. In other words, because of the work they do, show respect. Now, let's talk about what should a member do who lives under authority, but then has uh, some difficulty or some challenges, or what do they do to uh, deal with that? Go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, this is a great question. Let's go back to verse 17. I just, I just showed you this one, but let me, let me extend it for you. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now look at verse 19 to answer this question. Do not admit a charge against an elder 
except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, this is an elder, as to an elder who persists in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Now let's pause for a second. Uh, Paul is instructing the church of Ephesus through Timothy. Verse 19, don't admit a charge against an elder that is unsubstantiated by two or three witnesses. Now the importance of this is because of what we taught this morning. In 1 Timothy chapter three, an elder is qualified primarily by his what? I know he has a capability or a skill he's supposed to be able to teach, but that list, 1 Timothy 3, one through seven, primarily deals with what? His character. An elder is primarily qualified by his character. And so spurious accusations against an elder rob him of the only currency he has. And that's why Paul tells the church of Ephesus, you're not going to allow spurious charges against an elder because I don't want you robbing their character because the character is the only thing they have. It doesn't mean that they're always right. It just means these need to be substantiated. And that's why it says two or three. And then I also want you to notice in this text, it says, and they are gonna be held to a serious account. Did you see that? I mean, this is gonna be known before all. As for those who persist, verse 20, in sin, then rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may stand in fear. So there is a pathway here of not making accusations spuriously against an elder. If it were a member, then what might be the process is that there would be whoever the witness is, that they would go to another elder and share those concerns so that that could then be navigated to the elder with whom they have the concern. In other words, one of the values of having a plurality of elders is if you would uh, have a circumstance like that, then make sure, one, it's not a spurious claim, but it's a substantiated one, and then you could go to one of the other elders with that concern. Yeah. Did that answer your question? Okay, we have time for one more, and I think right here. Yeah, go ahead. Do you see any evidence for the requirement for a plurality of elders, even in, a, say, a smaller congregation where... It's not so much a management of the people, but either accountability or for So Brian's asking, do I see um, a requirement for a plurality of elders, maybe in a congregation that's small, smaller? Um, so I would put it this way. A plurality of elders seems to be the normative and healthy model that we see in the New Testament. So... A church, listen to this, a church actually can exist without a pastor. Do you know that? The church doesn't disappear. It's just not in a healthy state, or we would say maybe in its optimally ordered state. When Paul sent Titus to Crete, he said, I want you to set in order the things that are lacking. So it was a church. It just wasn't a rightly ordered church. And, and the thing that was lacking there is he had to ordain elders, plural, in every city. And so I think that should be the aspiration, the goal, the normative way in which a healthy church would operate. There are circumstances, I would imagine, where you don't have a plural eldership because there's no one qualified yet. 
But I think that's where Titus chapter one burdens the church appropriately. Titus one is basically saying, here's Paul. Titus, I want you to go to Crete. Crete, Paul? Yeah, go to Crete. Paul, you know what those people are like, right? This is the King James chapter one. They're evil beasts and slow bellies. <laughs> That's what it said in the King James translation. They're evil beasts and slow bellies. And Paul goes, yes, I know. The saying is true. That's Titus chapter one. And he says, and among them, I want you to ordain elders. You see? So I think that the church has had a lot of excuses and maybe not done appropriate amount of work and investment in training up elders. So it could be a season where a church has one elder, but that, that church should be praying. They should be giving so they could have like, let's say an internship program or something. I mean, they should be doing stuff to try to raise up. That pastor should be trying to disciple men and pray that they, he would be able to disciple another elder to come alongside of him. So I think that would be probably the ideal, the normative, the rightly ordered, the healthy aspiration for a church to move towards. Okay, we're out of time. Sorry. <laughs>